Right. Thanks, Josh, and thanks everyone that's been involved so far. Um, hi to everyone at home as well. As Josh said, we're going to finish uh, this morning looking at this four-week series that we've been in in Ecclesiastes and hopefully have a look at what some of the great conclusions are from the book. So as we do that, what I'd love you to do is to open up your Bible or your phone where you've got your Bible at, and we're going to read the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. Now, I'm broadly kind of looking at the last two chapters this morning, but let's read together the final chapter and, in a sense, the final conclusion of what this, what this book has to offer, uh, this book that, in many respects, is so confusing, as we've said numerous times over the last couple of weeks, so depressing at times, and yet so helpful for us, I believe, in our cultural moment. So if you're there, let's have a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, And the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And now the conclusion. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. That's for the students out there. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, when I was growing up, um, my dad had this special way. Some of you know my dad. He was a a Baptist pastor for many years. But my dad had this very special ability to be able to control me and my two sisters with his eyes. Uh, He was really a man before his time because uh, this ability that he had would have worked even with face masks on because no words were required and no facial expressions were needed. Uh, If one of us stepped out of line in any way in a public space, uh, his eyes said it all. Uh, We very creatively called this the look. And so if me or my two sisters got the look from dad, we knew exactly what to expect at that moment in time. That was the moment to pull our heads in this unbelievable ability to control us. But there is, and I look, I don't want to burst any bubbles for the new parents out there, uh, but I will. There's a stage of parenting that comes when a look will no longer be enough. 
when words don't really have the same effect on your kids, and when you realise that you don't have as much control over your children as you thought you did. And for me, that moment uh, came a few years ago. It was a normal Friday night for us as a household. Um, My two boys who are here with me this morning uh, were at youth group. Myself and Jane were at home just doing what we normally do on Friday night, just trying to recover from the week and watch a bit of TV or something like that. Uh, Our eldest daughter, Chelsea, had organised to spend the night at a friend from school. Everything was pretty normal. And so I dragged myself off the couch at about 9.30 to go and pick the boys up from youth group. And, And normally, out of the exhaustion of the week on a Friday night, I don't even bother, well, back then, I didn't even bother to go in. Uh, I would just ring them from the car park and tell them to come out and meet me in the car so we can all go home and go to bed. Uh, But this Friday night, and I'm not even sure now, looking back in hindsight, why I did it, I decided to get out of the car and and go inside uh, to go get the boys from there. And lo and behold, when I went into, it was only Park Baptist at the time, I went into their youth group that night, lo and behold, I saw the girl that Chelsea was supposed to be spending the night with, which was quite remarkable at the time, I couldn't believe it. She didn't normally go to that youth group. Uh, She lives on the other side of town. There was no reason for her to be there that Friday night, and yet there she was. And so as a dad, I'm thinking, what what is going on here? Like, Chelsea's supposed to be spending the night at her place. So I did what every dad is supposed to do. I went up to this girl. I knew her from school, and I said, oh, is Chelsea supposed to be with you? And she was none the worse. She knew nothing as to what was going on. Uh, And suddenly my dad's senses were up, and I knew that something was wrong. I knew that in that moment something very different was up in my parenting. Uh, We knew already, myself and Jane, that there was a new boyfriend on the scene, one that we knew very little about. Uh, But the very little that we did know wasn't particularly comforting at that moment. Uh, So I did what I had done for the last 18 years of being a dad at that point in time. I tried to, you know, take control of the situation. And so I got on the phone to Chelsea straight away and I rang her and I told her in no uncertain terms with voice raised and as serious as I possibly could that she had to come home straight away, that this was not good enough, she'd been lying to us, she had to get home as soon as she possibly could. And I waited and at the other end of the line, the answer was no. And suddenly my heart dropped. I wasn't quite prepared for that. This is the first time in the sense of 18 years of parenting that one of my kids was suddenly saying, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And that was pretty confronting. So I tried again, and this time I threatened all kinds of things. I threatened to, you know, take her car away and a whole bunch of other consequences that you can probably think about. And her response to all that was, well, I just won't come home then. And my heart sank at that moment. Because in that moment, there was this stark and sudden realisation that I was not in control. And maybe I never was. Maybe all of that was just an illusion the whole time. But certainly, it all came crashing down at that moment. I was not in control. I could not control things in the way that I expected to, that I wanted to. And I didn't even realise. I thought I was a pretty laid-back dad until that point. Until that point where I realised that I actually control up until that point felt like a really good thing, and all of a sudden, it was gone. And it took a little while. It didn't all happen in the blink of an eye, but 
what it did take was a fundamental change. The only way really to move forward from that point was to accept that, was to surrender to the fact that I was not in control and that the only way that we were going to move forward in this whole parenting space now was to approach things in a different way. But man, that was a moment in a sense that changed our parenting lives. And I'm happy to say three years down the track, we're all in a much better place now. That's a story for another time. But that moment was a massive wake-up call. And funnily enough, I, for a long time, I felt really uncomfortable telling that story to anyone, really. And again, this week as I was preparing, I was a bit apprehensive about telling you that story this morning as well. Because it's really hard for me And it's really hard for any one of us to give up the facade that we're not in control of every part of our lives. But the reality is we're not, are we? American author Wendell Berry, uh, in his book or essay called Life is a Miracle, speaks of the hubris of presumption, which is his way of saying that we often have these false or even arrogant, overconfident assumptions that the world around us is completely knowable and predictable and in our control. And his belief is that this is behind so much of the ethos of the Western world, the way in which we live, and just kind of our expectation that science and technology and, and human progress will solve all of our problems, that we're in control of all of those things. But the reality is that every single one of us, each in our own way, have a deep human urge to control the world around us. Whether that's as a parent or in our workplace or whatever it is, we have an urge to control. We crave a sense of control as a way of managing our fear and anxiety of all the things that could go wrong in the world. And so we, so we seek and we crave control. We seek to control our own fate and our own story and our own little world to make sure nothing bad happens to us. We crave that kind of control. And for those of us who have grown up in and now live in Western culture, it's even worse for us. Because we've grown up with wealth and privilege and often predictability and we're more susceptible to think that we can control the world. For some of us living in the West, it's taken a global pandemic over the last couple of years to realise that life doesn't always go according to plan, that life doesn't always go on this upward trajectory all the time. And at the end of the day, while we have more control over the world than perhaps people did when they lived in the past, you know, the, the bygone eras where the world was more unpredictable than it is today, and while we living in the West might have more predictability than those that live in some parts of the developing world where life is unpredictable all the time, we still can't control the parts of life that matter the most. And this has been a constant refrain over these last few weeks as we've delved into the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes remind us that that while we might live in a world where there is wealth and privilege and science and technology, no matter how much of that stuff that we have, we still can't control death. What was the death rate, Melinda, you said last week? Yeah, about 100%. We can't control death. Look, we can't even control the weather, let alone control death. We can't control time. We can't control what others do or say. We can't control suffering or injustice. 
We can't control what's happening in the Ukraine today. We can pray and we can lament and we can give, but we can't control it. We can't even control the world with wisdom. Melinda said so well last week. We can't think our way out of the complexity of the world. We can't do it. No matter how smart we are, no matter how much we study, we'll never be able to think our way out of the complexity of the world. Because life, according to Ecclesiastes, is an enigma. It's a paradox. In the words of Ecclesiastes, it is a vapour, a chasing after the wind. No matter what we do, no matter how much we achieve or how much progress we make, nothing really ever changes. Did anyone get the sense of that this week, just looking at the news? You know, think about what's happening uh, between Russia and the Ukraine, and you think to yourself, haven't we learnt the lessons of the past? The answer is no, because history repeats itself. I think about, Josh mentioned Afghanistan this morning, and I agree with you, Josh, how quickly we move on, how quickly we forget the idea that so much time and effort and toil and lives were lost in Afghanistan only to see it return to much of the way it was before. It seems so vaporous. This is the language of Ecclesiastes. We can't control. No matter whether we're rich or poor or wise or a fool, we're all going to die. That is the message of Ecclesiastes. Death is the great equaliser. And so we live, particularly, like I said, in the West, those of us who have grown up here, we live with this paradox and frustration of trying to control and master something that cannot be mastered, that simply cannot be controlled. And so what's the answer? What is the conclusion to all that according to the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, perhaps the best word I can use to describe the conclusion is surrender. And that's the word I want us to grab hold of this morning. The conclusion is surrender. It's to learn to accept that despite our best efforts, most things in life are completely out of our control. And once we surrender ourselves to that reality... While it might open up our life to a significant amount of grief, it also has the possibility of opening up our lives to significant joy. Because when we accept that life is largely out of our control, first of all, and here's my first reflection for this morning, and actually it's been a little refrain over the few weeks that we've been looking at Ecclesiastes as well, but when we accept that life is out of control, it leads us to experience joy in the everyday. And over and over and over again, in some of the bleakest moments of Ecclesiastes, amongst the confusion and the injustice and the chaos, we see these little glimpses of joy. These little glimpses of hope, if you like. And they are the joy of everyday things. That's what I love about these little glimpses of joy in Ecclesiastes. They're not bold, big, you know, out there things. They are just everyday things that we find joy in. The joy of friendship, the blessing of family, the satisfaction of a hard day's work, the savouring of a good meal. And as we approach the end of Ecclesiastes, we see one more little glimpse of everyday joy, and that's the joy of a sunny day. Unfortunately, it's a bit cloudy this morning. It didn't quite work with the program. But the joy of a sunny day. 
We didn't read it before, but in Ecclesiastes 11, uh, if you've still got your Bible open there, in verse 7, it says, Light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun, the joy of a sunny day. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun. Funnily enough, it's funny what the mind does. As soon as I read those words again this week, my mind went back to one of my favourite sunny days back in 2009. And this has got a bit of context. I had just spent the last nine days trekking the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea. I went over there as part of a school trip and, and did the trek. Um, I'd trekked along you know, steep cliffs and held my pack above my head as I walked through swollen rivers and along a whole bunch of other treacherous terrain there in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. But none of that really worried me because I felt like most of those things I was basically in control of. The thing that I was most apprehensive about on that whole trip was just the short plane ride back from Kokoda back into Port Moresby. Uh, because let's face it, uh, little planes in Papua New Guinea have a habit of running into tall mountains. Uh, there's been plenty of examples of that over the years. And so I was a bit apprehensive about that whole thing because that is something that I certainly wasn't in control of. I was not flying the plane. I couldn't control whether there was you know, going to be a big storm that would roll in at any given moment as they're about to take off. I was not in control. Uh, so that final morning as we got up at the Kokoda station and we walked across to the grassy airstrip there at Kokoda and the sun was out and the skies were clear, it was the best feeling one can possibly have. I was so excited that we had a beautiful sunny morning and that that would make flying so much more safe. And in that moment, I was well and truly with the writer of Ecclesiastes who says light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. That was my experience. Such a simple thing. And I don't think maybe I'd ever appreciated a sunrise in the same way as that before. But this is part of the message of Ecclesiastes, when life is so out of our control, it frees us up to see the joy in everyday things. And this is ultimately about our posture to life, the way that we see the world, how we're going to the lens through which we see the things around us. And ultimately, when we surrender to the idea that life is unpredictable, that life's an enigma, that life feels like chasing after the wind at times, it's actually then that we are most free. It seems like a paradox, but then we are most free. Because the expectation, the weight that we feel of having to control everything can be incredibly enslaving. But surrendering that idea, giving that idea up, actually frees us up to enjoy life as we actually experience it. The very normal things, the very everyday things, the simple things that are a gift to us. We can't control everything that happens to us and around us. So when those precious moments do come, and they do come, whether it's a beautiful sunrise, a delicious meal, a special time spent with a friend, we need to stop and thank God for the gift that they are. The challenge is that we don't often stop and do it. We let those moments pass us by. And so this morning, we're going to stop. We're going to intentionally stop for a moment and think about this. We're going to do a few little practices this morning. This is our first one. Uh, and it's a simple little practice. All I want us to do is stop for a, uh, uh, just a, a couple of minutes in a practice of recognition. 
What is one everyday thing that brings you joy? That you don't often think about, but an everyday, ordinary thing that brings you joy, that you see as a gift, or maybe you, when you stop to recognise it, at least, you see it as a gift from God. I want you to reflect on that for a minute. And again, thinking about you know, passing things around and being a teacher, I've got some post-it notes down the front and some texters, and I'm a high school teacher too, I'm not sure, but I've got a bunch of texters down here. Um, but what I want you to do, just in a couple of minutes, as we stop and reflect on this, I want you to think about that one thing, or maybe there's a couple of things, maybe you want to put a few things up. But I want you to write one everyday thing down that you are thankful for, that you're grateful for, that brings you joy. I want you to write it down. I want you to stick it up on the wall over there. So we're going to start on that wall over there. Can we do that for a couple of minutes? Stop, and then we're going to go again in a second. Let's do that now. And let's fill up that wall with as many post-it notes as we can. Let's go. All right, well done with that. That's great. It's great to see the wall there filling up with colourful little notes. I I do have to say that it looks like, in the words of Ecclesiastes, the stickiness of office works post-it notes are also temporary. Uh, So we'll bear with that. But thanks for doing that. It is so important just to stop. um, And may this be a practice that that you continue in some shape or form to stop and recognise the everyday things that bring us joy when life, the rest of life, seems so out of control. And the second reflection, which will lead us to a second practice in just a moment, at the end of Ecclesiastes, is as we recognise and accept that life is out of control, that we are called to remember, remember our Creator. This is the refrain in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. Again, the, the final chapter begins with these words, remember your Creator. In the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And this little part finishes in verses 6 and 7. It says, remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And if you read close and if you were listening carefully, this language in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes is all about decay. It's about getting older. It's about approaching death. It's about the idea that I have to bring my glasses up on a stage now just in case I can't read what's in front of me. Uh, This is part of the inevitability of life. This is something else that we have zero control over, right? About getting older and approaching the end of life because time stops for no one. And yet, you think about in our culture how much time and effort is spent on trying to feel younger or look younger. But that too is just vapour. Time stops for no one. We're all going to get old. No matter how many times we go to the gym or how much anti-ageing cream that we put on in the mornings or how much cosmetic surgery celebrities have, age catches up with us all. I do have to say, though, it's great fodder for, you know, clickbait on the internet. We've all been there, haven't we, where, you know, you might be trying to Google something on the internet and something will come up on the side, it'll flash up and it'll say something like, remember Billy Zane from Titanic? You'll never believe what he looks like now. (laughs) And in our vulnerable moments, of course, we click because we want to know what Billy Zane looks like 25 years later. And surprise, surprise, Billy Zane looks 25 years older than he did in Titanic. Um... I'm not really sure why I picked on Billy Zane this morning. I, 
He probably looks great. I don't know. You'll have to look him up afterwards. Uh, but there is just this inevitability to getting older, to ageing and decay. And so therefore, in the language of Ecclesiastes, our call, our challenge is to remember. And when we think about remembering from a biblical context, it's more than just not forgetting. You know, think back to Exodus. When the people of Israel are suffering in slavery in Egypt, and it says there that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. It wasn't that God forgot or didn't write it in his diary or suddenly woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. When God remembers Israel, it's a reflection of his commitment to them. It's a statement of commitment. He acted on their behalf to rescue his people. And so for us to remember our creator, it's not just to think about him, as important as that is. It's a statement and call to commitment. It is to fear God. It is to trust God. It is to obey God. And hence we get this language from kind of the author, the narrator of Ecclesiastes as we approach the finish. And reflecting on this idea that we are supposed to remember our creator The narrator finishes by saying, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. You know, I said back in week one that Ecclesiastes targets all the different ways that that we seek to find meaning apart from God. All the other masters, essentially, that we often will give our allegiance to. Things like wealth and career progression and social status and pleasure. And of course, as we found out over these few weeks of doing this series, Ecclesiastes does a fantastic job at challenging these false hopes. And that is really helpful ultimately because when we surrender those false hopes, when we accept that they are like vapour, they are fleeting, they're temporary, they're like a chasing after the wind, it compels us. It forces us, in a sense. It encourages us to put our total trust, to give our total allegiance to God. And not just because he's the last option standing, but because as we sang about before, and I'm so glad you chose that song, Willinda, because as we sang about before, we put our total allegiance in God because he is good, because he is eternal, because he is trustworthy, because he is faithful, because he has acted on our behalf in the past and he will act on our behalf again. You know, much like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, um, I think about the Passover feast that they would have and a bunch of other festivals that they instituted. They did these things once a year so that they would intentionally remember. And this, uh, this intentional remembering was an act of trust It was saying if God has rescued us in the past and rescued us from Egypt, then surely he will rescue us again. It was an act of commitment and an act of trust. No matter how life, how crazy life and how uncertain life got for them, if he'd done it before, he could do it again. Remembrance is an act of trust. And so again, our second little practice this morning I want us to practice that, to practice 
remembering, not just not forgetting, but remembrance as an act of trust. So I want us to get up out of our seats again, and this time, we're going to go to this wall. And I want us to finish this sentence. I will trust you because. Or maybe think about it in the sense of, I will give my allegiance to you because. And maybe it's a character trait of God that you hang on to. And you're going to trust God. You're going to give your allegiance to Jesus because you know he is like this. Or maybe it's something that has happened in the past, a way that God has been faithful to you, the way that he has shown himself in the past. And I'm going to continue to trust you because I know you've done that in the past and I know you'll do it again. So let's get up out of our seats again. Grab the pens, post-it notes. Let's fill that wall. I will trust you because. Go for it. All right. We'll give you one more practice together this morning. We're going to kind of go straight into this. And our third and final practice is, in case you haven't seen at the front, is to share the communion meal together. And we're going to do that because if you think about it, the things that we have wrestled with over the last few weeks in Ecclesiastes, the complexity and uncertainty, inevitability, and at times plain disappointment of life, that unquestionably leaves us yearning for more, doesn't it? And as we've said a few times during this, this series, the book of Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. It predates the coming of Jesus. And so in many respects, these questions that we wrestle with in the book of Ecclesiastes inevitably point us to Jesus. The questions of Ecclesiastes leave us longing for true justice. They leave us aching for things to be made right. They leave us hoping for a coming king and a coming kingdom. And this tension that we experience in Ecclesiastes is only resolved when sin is dealt with and when death is defeated and with the promise of life and life to the full. Ecclesiastes points to Jesus. And when we put our total trust and give our total allegiance to Jesus... Then again, in a funny kind of way, we are are free. We're free to live in the tension that our world often delivers. We're free to remain a bit puzzled by life and the things that we experience. We're free to not have to understand everything. We're free to not have to pin our hopes on technology or on human progress. Because our ultimate hope is not in ourselves. It's not in human progress. It's not in the vacuous promises of our culture. Our hope is in King Jesus. Our trust is in King Jesus. Our allegiance is given to King Jesus. And that is what we practice together this morning. And in many respects, communion is like a bit of a culmination of the, of the things that we have just done in separate ways. Communion is an intentional act of remembrance as we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. His life, his death, his resurrection, his raising to new life. Communion is an act of recognition of the gift 
of grace and forgiveness that God gives us through Jesus. Communion, of course, is an act of anticipation of what is to come when all things will be made right, when there will be no more confusion or suffering or death or mourning or sickness. And life will be the way God intended it for it to be with God, with others, with his creation. So this morning we come to our third and final practice and we celebrate communion together as an act of trust. This is the story that we will put our trust in, that Jesus has come to show us life, to give us life and the promise of eternal life with him. So I'm going to invite you up. Um, the, the band are going to come back and they're going to maybe collect their elements on the way, but they're just going to play for us as we spend a couple of moments coming up to get a little bit of bread, which represents the body of Christ broken for us. A little bit of juice, which represents Christ's blood that we're going to drink together in a moment in anticipation of the new creation that is to come. And what I want us to do in good Baptist tradition, uh, take the bread back to your chairs and eat and pray and thank God. But I want you to hold on to that little cup because in a moment we're going to drink together to celebrate as a community who we put our trust in. So I invite you up to come and grab those elements of communion. Let's all, let's all drink together in remembrance of him. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus, for the giving of his life and the raising to new life so that we can experience life and life to the full. And we thank you that this is a story that is trustworthy one that we can give our allegiance to, one that makes sense of so much of the confusion that we experience in life and one in which when life seems to be falling apart and so out of control at, our time, at times that we can put our trust in because you are good, because you are faithful, because you are eternal. And God, in amongst all of the things that seem so temporary and, and fleeting and so at times meaningless in the culture around us, may we be, be people that are found in you and in your story. And we pray as we eat this bread this morning, as we drink together as a community, it can be a declaration that we are your people, that you are our king and that we want to be part of your kingdom in the world on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for who you are and for all that you have done. And we commit these things to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.